Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the People to People podcast, which in Chichewa is Antukwantu. This is so exciting. Thank you for making it along to the very beginning of our story. My name is Chimamadori, but you can call me Chimsy. And I'm Hazel, and we both live in Edinburgh. I'm Scottish, and I have lived here all my life. I'm Malawian, and have lived in Scotland for coming up to six years now. And we have recently formed a partnership. A double act. A comedy duo. More like friends with a shared interest. To make a podcast series that really gets stuck into what is going on in the unique relationship between Scotland and Malawi. And we're going to do that by talking to as many people as possible in both Scotland and in Malawi to really dig deep into what partnership means. And to find out how people connect with people. We've got 10 smashing episodes lined up for you with the most relevant conversations of the moment. And I'm going to make everyone a promise. And what is that? You will hear new perspectives that you have never heard before. What do you think? I think that's true. And whether you've been involved in the Scotland-Malawi partnership before, or if you've never heard anything about it before, you're very welcome here. Takulandlani. And I think you will find something new and interesting. So, Hazel, what sort of conversations should people expect from the series? This series is going to explore perceptions. Here's Cathy Ratcliffe. I guess that's really a big part of the problem is that it's people presenting other people rather than people presenting themselves. We're going to talk about the planet, and here is Andrew Namakoma. If it's not a drought, then it's floods, or it moves from floods to drought, all right? So the rivers that used to have the waters throughout the year are no longer holding the water throughout the year. We are going to look at privilege, and we spoke to members of the Boys Brigade from Dunblane. The only time that I really felt uncomfortable in Malawi was when we were eating lunch at the school and the kids watching us eat and knowing that we couldn't give them any food. And that is just a taster. So many juicy conversations coming up. And in this very first ever episode, we're talking about the past. We have packed this episode with very exciting conversations, including world-famous comedian and Britain's Got Talent finalist, Deliso Chaponda. It was very complicated because there were some who were negative forces and there were some who were positive forces, but they were all, uh, you know, (laughs) uh, looking at the locals as though they had no self-determination. We're also speaking with Scotland's former first minister, Lord Jack McConnell. And in fact, when the president came to Scotland in in November and I took him to the David Livingston Centre in Blantyre, he actually wept as he looked at uh, some of the artefacts, the shackles from the days of slavery and so on that that are in the museum there. We're speaking with two of the founders of the Lost History Foundation in Malawi. My understanding now, after getting educated and studying a lot, is that uh, I'm connected to the spirits of my forefathers, those who were here before me. There's going to be no jargon or any technical speak in this podcast, mainly because Hazel and I don't know any. We're not experts. We're just having conversations with lots of different Malawians and Scots and really trying to listen to lots of different perspectives. We're going to be unafraid of any issue and keen to dig into really meaty subjects, including the sensitive and the nuanced. We don't look to give answers. We're just trying to find the right questions to ask. So Hazel, tell me, why are we talking about this? Well, today, more than 109,000 Scots and 208,000 Malawians are actively involved in community-led partnerships between the two nations. Not just that, 46% of Scots 
that is almost half of the country, can name a friend or a family member with a connection to Malawi, making this one of the world's strongest north-south people-to-people links. That's amazing, isn't it? It is. Our history began at the start of this year, didn't it? It did. Uh, So we were set up by the Scotland-Malawi partnership who thought we'd get on. And what were your first impressions of me, Chimsy? She seems lovely. And you of me? I thought that this woman is going to improve the coolness of me and of this podcast radically. You make me at least 70% more cool. (laughs) Definitely. By by association. (laughs) Right, I confess, I am relieved to have you by my side because I really knew absolutely nothing about Malawi when I began this project. Or next to nothing. My parents lived in Malawi before I was born and they came back to the UK when my mum was pregnant with me. So I always heard stories about Malawi and we had Malawian things in our house. Like there's an old Malangi cedar wood box and it still smells incredible when you open it. But I have never been to Malawi and I certainly knew nothing of the history of Malawi. Hmm. So... I lived in Malawi until I was 16. Uh, my family actually still live in Malawi. I moved to the UK probably a month after I turned 16. On your own? With my dad. Ah. So we figured that history and the past is the best place to start and really set the scene for all the conversations that we're going to have. If you only had 10 seconds to describe the important events of Malawian history, let's see if you can do it, Chimsy. Right, ready? Oh, God. Time starts. Just give us a brief rundown. Okay. Go. Uh, so starting off, we have slave trade. We have Dr. David Livingston going to Malawi. We have the uprising of John Chilembwe. We then have um, the dictatorship of Dr. Hastings Kamazubanda. And then we have democracy. You did it. That's a 10 second version. Let's look at it in a little bit more detail now. Yeah. <laughs> We spoke to Conleth Chester Selenje, Executive Director of the Lost History Foundation. All right. Uh, Malawi was under chieftains, okay? But with the coming of the Ngoni from South Africa, they were a warlike tribe. So when they came to Malawi, especially part of the northern region, they set up a kingdom. Uh, it's still up to now. The leader is still regarded as king of the Ngoni there. The other tribes, weaker ones, were suppressed, of course. Lilongwe, which you say today, that is a Chewa place. There was a Chewa chief there, and today still, they share that chieftaincy with another Chewa in Zambia. It's African, okay? We are Africans. Now, we are in a society which uh, was, first of all, having its own beliefs before the coming of Christianity. We believed in the spirits of our ancestors. It is even up to now, many people believe in that, okay? So, uh, because many people still believe in that, those who are conservative, they practice that. And uh, Vimbuza is a type of uh, uh, dance which, when a person is possessed with the, the spirits, the spirits have talked to the person, have passed a message, but the person is not in a, a normal form, a normal form. So, when that dance has been performed, it brings back the normality of the person after talking to the spirits, after getting messages from the spirits to be passed on to the people. I don't believe in Vimbuza, but uh, I believe in uh, the spirits of uh, my forefathers. My understanding now, after getting educated and studying a lot, is that uh, I'm connected to 
the spirits of my forefathers, those who were here before me. Which which tribe do you belong to? I belong to a tribe called Lomwe. So these Lomwe's Lomwe's came from Mozambique way back. Some values, of course, are senseless, but others are beneficial. I can't just lose my identity. I have to take what is of value and uh, check out what is not of value. Conley spoke to us by the side of the road in southern Malawi. He found a spot with signal that's usable if we patiently reconnect several times. Towards the end of our conversation, the sun suddenly sets, plunging him into darkness. The mission of the Lost History Foundation is to repair the lost parts of Malawian history, remembering unsung heroes and the parts that have been edited out by colonial rule and dictatorship. There are so many stories here, but one in particular marks the start of the relationship between Scotland and Malawi, David Livingstone. Livingstone opened up Malawi, Central Africa to Christianity and really he succeeded in uh, putting a stop, minimizing the East African slave trade. Of course, it didn't happen within a very short period of time. It took time because the slave masters could find ways. They could find their way still, but after some time, Christianity spread and Central Africa was opened up to a legitimate trade. The people learned that slave trade is evil. It eventually stopped. So if you talk of Livingstone in Malawi, he's an icon because his life is celebrated in many ways. We have an area, a beautiful area in the northern region of Malawi, close to the lake. It's called Livingstonia after his name. His portrait is in many places. He's regarded as one of the people who played a very big role in bringing Christianity to Malawi, Central Africa, and ending the slave trade. Livingstone's history is not political in Malawi. So because it is not political, it has not suffered any damages or any obliterations, omissions and the like. It is presented the way it happened. But if Livingstone's uh, legacy was political, uh, we could not have true information and facts of what happened simply because during the one-party era, the, first, the dictator who was uh, sitting on the presidency himself could not allow other people to be uh, revered than himself. So because Livingstone's uh, legacy is not political, it is preserved. It is preserved. I think it's really important that we're careful here because Scots like to talk about their role in the abolition of slavery and not about how they benefited from the cotton, sugar and tobacco plantations. The owning of personal slaves was banned in Scotland in 1778. That was 229 years before abolition of the trade. During that time, and even today, Scots still benefit from the riches gained by slavery. We thought it was a good idea to ask Deliso Chaponda, a very funny man, to talk about the very unfunny subject matter of colonialism and slavery. There was the slave trade, right? And then when slavery essentially was outlawed in most places. A lot of colonial powers were like, okay, well, we can't do slavery, but they've still got a lot of good stuff, right? And so it kind of shifted to a slightly less morally repugnant thing, which was a colonial thing, but then you still had workers being mistreated and being underpaid and so on and so forth, but at least they weren't slaves. It was, you know, a slow slow, steady progress towards, uh, not that we're in an ideal situation now, but gradually, every generation, things got a bit better. History, even when it's negative, it's actually kind of inspiring because we got from that 
to where we are now, which isn't ideal, but it also the fact that society seems to tend towards the positive means that we can only hope that in 50 years things will be even more equal and so on and so forth. Missionaries uh, went down to uh, African countries for multiple reasons. Some of them went, like David Livingston, it seems, out of a desire to spread the word of God and try to uplift. Other people, it was purely a financial thing. They're like, they've got resources, we want the resources. And so there are all these different people who came for different reasons. Livingston was one of the positive forces. It was very complicated because there were some who were negative forces and there were some who were positive forces, but they were all, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, looking at the locals as though they had no self-determination. Another significant moment in history is the uprising of John Chilembwe, who appears on Malawian banknotes and fought a bloody battle against colonialism before being killed. No one knows where exactly he was buried, and Daliso is writing a book about him. What inspired you to write a historical book about that period? I am very interested in what would take someone to go from the arc from being a pacifist minister, pastor, to let's uprise, smash stuff, attack people. It's just, it, it, how, how do you go from there to there? And that's sort of what the book's about. Malawi achieved independence from colonial rule in 1964. Then there was a couple of years where Malawi's head of state was Queen Elizabeth and Dr. Hastings Kamuza Banda, her head of government. But in 1966, Malawi became a republic. And for the next 30 years, it was a one-party state under Dr. Hastings Kamuzu Banda. Here's a little fun fact for you. Dr. Hastings Kamuzubanda attended the Royal Society of Surgeons and Physicians at the University of Edinburgh, where he qualified as a medical doctor on his fifth attempt. Kamuzubanda did some positive things, but was not a fan of criticism. And my, my uncle, actually, not even my dad, was very political and critical. And when he left, because he had to leave and my dad left with him, he was painted with the same brush. So we were in political exile when I was a kid. Well, I was a baby. I didn't know what was going on. Right? But I was born in Zambia and uh, I my early life was spent bouncing around African countries. And I was, I think I was 11 when I first went to Malawi. You are listening to the People to People podcast. With me, Hazel. And me, Chimzi. And this is the absolute beginning. You have not missed anything. Episode number one. People and the past. Scotland was on its own journey of devolution during this time, forming its own parliament in 1999. 2005 was an important year in the relationship between Scotland and Malawi. 2005 was important. It was the G8 meet at Glen Eagles, the Make Poverty History campaign. And it was the year that the Scotland and Malawi governments signed a cooperation agreement. And we were lucky enough to talk to Scotland's former First Minister, Jack McConnell, about his experience of that time. What was it like speaking to Lord Jack McConnell about this? It was very interesting. Yeah, did you think he came across as like a politician or do you think he came across as a human? A bit of both. Are we going to go to prison for asking that question? I don't want to go to jail, Hazel. No. Okay. I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> you are really allowed to question politicians in this country. That is true. Yeah. I was slightly nervous about uh, 
the previous colonial history between the UK and Malawi when I when I went. I don't I didn't want to be seen as, you know, somebody coming from the UK or Scotland to in any way, you know, tell people what they should be doing or, you know, patronize. And I was particularly nervous about mentioning David Livingston because the history of Western European explorers in Africa is not a great one. However, uh, uh, when I got to Malawi, one of the first government ministers that I met mentioned Livingston. And I said, well, I'm not too sure whether I should be mentioning David Livingston if I'm speaking at this event. And and they said, oh, yes, you can mention David Livingston anytime you want in Malawi. In fact, in Malawi, we don't say that David Livingston discovered Malawi. We say that Malawi discovered David Livingston. It was fascinating to see the depth of quite an emotional feeling for Livingston amongst particularly the older generations. And in fact, when the president came to Scotland in, in November and I took him to the David Livingston Centre in Blantyre, he actually wept as he looked at uh, some of the artefacts, the shackles from the days of slavery and so on that, that are in the museum there. And he said that he could remember his grandparents telling him about this Scotsman who had come to Malawi and had basically, over a 20-year period, uh, led the campaign to, to stop the slave, slave trade out of Zanzibar and had basically changed their lives because they, had, they hadn't been living under the threat of uh, being taken away as slaves anymore. Can you describe when you arrived in Malawi, what kind of reception did you receive? I imagine it's quite different from the reception I might receive. Uh, one of the things I learned very quickly about Malawi, certainly at that time, was uh, it's quite a deferential society, which I think is does come out of, uh, partly out of the history of colonialism, but it also comes out of the, the history of the um, effective dictatorship of President Banda in the early years of independence. Uh, although, I mean, I had done a lot of official visits around the world to different places uh, by that point, but I had never been met by a, an official car at the bottom of the steps in the middle of the airport uh, as I came out the plane, surrounded by soldiers who then ran alongside uh, the car as we drove from there to the VIP lounge. So I was very struck right away that I was in an environment where I was going to be treated like full-scale VIP visitor. And it might be difficult, therefore, to get to to get to the people and find out about real life rather than just the the official version. It was it was essential that we got away out of the capital and into the villages. At that time, I was doing a thing regularly in Scotland as first minister, which we called Ask Jack. People get tickets and come along and and then ask any question they wanted of me, and it was sort of live on the radio. We tried it out in Malawi, and it had I mean nothing like this had ever been done in Malawi before. I don't think they. Uh, we did it uh, with Malawi TV. You did it live on the TV. You could see how nervous people were of even asking a question of somebody in authority because of that deferential culture. But when they realised that I was actually wanting the questions and uh, encouraging them to, to stand up and, and, and make their point, the level of kind of excitement in the room built. Um, and by the end of it, you know, there were more questions than we could actually deal with. You know, it was just so interesting to see to see the impact of the colonial years and the dictatorship years on people's political and social culture, but also to see the potential. If you just unlock that a little bit, the the day that had the biggest impact on me was a day when we visited a village in central Malawi, uh, where uh, first of all, we, we came across a number of families headed by children where the parents had both died 
I think primarily of HIV at that time, which was a massive epidemic in the country at the, at the time and across the whole region. To see these children struggling to cope, but, you know, being resolute and determined had a, quite a big emotional impact on a lot of members of the group that I was with. But then I went to visit a village primary school. It was literally a very small uh, hut with a straw roof and mud on the floor and a blackboard. I spoke to the teacher about the challenge of teaching maths with no books, um, no electricity, no pencils. But then we went around the corner and there was a brick building, a sandstone brick building with no roof. The locals explained to me that it was actually, it was a new school that had been built three, two, three years previously. And they'd never been able to buy the corrugated iron to put on the roof. I said, how much would it cost? They said about a thousand pounds. And this school had not been opened for, for the sake of a thousand pounds. That image has stuck with me ever since. I remember that when when President Metallica came to Scotland in, in November for the conference, which launched the partnership. On the last day, we met a group of Malawian students at the David Livingston Centre in Blantyre in Lanarkshire. The president was quite, he was a very formal guy, you know. I mean, he, he had a, a ballet guy who went, who went round with him everywhere, you know, and poured his water, glass of water for him. And, you know, he was, he, it was a very formal formal person to to deal with in private as well as in public. Although I developed, you know, an ability to talk to him in a relaxed way in private. But uh, we met this group of Malawian students and I invited him to say a few words to this group of students. And he actually said, and I'll I'll always remember this, uh, this new partnership is not the Jack and Bingo show. It is your show. You've got to make it work. I don't think anybody in Malawi had ever heard him use somebody's first name before. <laughs> Never mind his own first name. <laughs> it was, it was, I think at that time there were there were less than twenty schools in Scotland that had had links with Malawi over the previous years. Uh, I thought if we could double that, we'd be doing pretty well. And of course, and of course, today it's about four hundred. <laughs> it's a fantastic tribute to the people of Scotland and the people of Malawi. And this has been organic. They have done this themselves. You know, yes, there's been support from governments over the years, but it's been support from governments, not governments telling them what to do and leading from the top. It's been it's been the people doing it for themselves. I'm so proud of it, and I would love to tell the story around the world because I think others could learn from it and build these kind of relationships in a way that would make our whole world a better place. Hi, I'm Hazel. And I'm Chimzy. And you're listening to the People to People podcast. Exploring the unique partnership between Scotland and Malawi. And this week, we are digging deep into the past. Whilst trying to understand how deeply rooted this partnership is for people, it helped me to speak with two women, a Scot who took her mother's ashes to lie beside her grandmother's in Malawi, and a Malawian who can trace her mixed culture background back to the Scottish missionaries. So we spoke to Marriott Dallas and the story of her family's connection with Malawi goes way back to three generations, to her grandparents who were missionaries in the 1920s. Mimi Martin, Marriott's grandmother, left behind some letters and diaries with some insight into the life of missionaries in Malawi back then. We'd always known there was letters and diaries um, from my granny that I didn't know, my granny Mimi, mum's mum. There were seven wee leather-bound books. And all we know from them, all I know from them, is their letters and diaries. They do paint an upbeat picture because they love the Malawian people. The Tonga people that I know in Bandawi are very optimistic, smiley, laughing, warm people. And I think they certainly found that. But then but their lives are quite hard. 
they would be aware all the time of people living in difficult situations, no health care, dangers from disease. And of course, ultimately, that's what took Mamie's life, because just as today, maternal death in pregnancy is, is far too high. In Malawi, you know, that's what happened to her. With her second child, there was not, there wasn't a doctor and she died and she caught black water fever, which is, I think, a very nasty kind of malaria. So she and the wee boy both died. So I'm depressed that still today, nearly 100 years later, maternal death and pregnancy is still quite common. The reason that, you know, the reason that the Mimi Martin Fund is still helping girls to get to school is that they're, um, if the girls don't go, go to school, then their, their lives can be very tough indeed to have too many children that's good for their body and, and a life of poverty and, and inequality. Mamie Martin, the eldest of three sisters, was perhaps unusually for the day very passionate about the education of women. So it's fitting that a generation later, intrigued by what she'd read in the diaries, Marriott's parents travelled to Malawi and came up with the idea of starting the Mamie Martin Fund that still assists women in their education fees today. So anyway, she and my dad went out to um, Malawi and they met up with somebody called Maxwell Banda, who's a lovely person. Um, Maxwell Banda was connected to my mum because his aunt, Berita, was the young woman who'd been employed by her parents when they lived in Africa, in Malawi, to help look after her. And they sat around, as you do in Malawi, probably after dark on the veranda, and uh, spoke about what, what could they do. And Mum and Dad were saying to her, saying to Maxwell and Lizzie, well, um, I'm sure people in Scotland would like to help our friends in Malawi. What, what would be useful? And Maxwell said, we're having real problems here in Bandawi in keeping girls in secondary school. Mum and Dad were both kind of kind of can-do people. I said, oh, well, I'm sure. I'm sure we could help out with that. Perhaps we could set up a little fund. And literally, that's what they did. They came back to Stirling, where they were living, and they spoke to their friends. And Mum and Dad were highly sociable people. Um, the, the number of friends they had was frankly ridiculous. So really, that's that's what happened was that their, their friends and, and neighbours and acquaintances got together with them, and, and they formed the new Martin Fund. And of course, it began in a small way, but but actually, really, we've stayed quite focused because just paying the girls' fees for four years, which is basically what we do, we've been doing all along, makes the most phenomenal difference. If they stay in school, if they get that four years of secondary education, their, their lives are transformed. And if they don't, then their lives, there's a lot of difficult things they may face, such as early pregnancy, early marriage, marriage perhaps that they hadn't chosen for, you know, if it was if it was helpful for the family to get a bride price for them. So mum died in 2009. She had, she went, she had dementia, it was horrible really. The Maxwell and Liz that I mentioned earlier, Maxwell Banda, they spoke to her on the phone when they knew how ill she was and she said, um, Margaret, Margaret, when you die, do you wish your ashes to come to Malawi? And mum of course said yes. And of course when, when we phoned the, the Bandas and said, you know, I am going to come out and bring the ashes. They were just, they were really thrilled. This is the church that my grandpa and other friends helped build before grandpa returned. Um, after Mamie had died, um, Jack um, had that church built in her memory. It's just a wee church, but it has a lovely brass plaque in the door talking about how she is. She was like salt and light and giving her dates and so on. They said, yes, we are, we are going to have 
representatives from the from two girls from each of the four school years. That's eight girls. So there were about 200 girls. And I love the women's guilds. I love the way they sing and dance. And there was prayers and there was hymns and huge colourful flowers. And I spoke in Tonga. I had to practice it. I, I said to Matt the night before, I must respond because outside the church is where my where Mimi is buried. So there's her grave and then there's the grave of the wee boy that, that never lived because he died at birth. Um, so next to that mum. So there's now the three, the three graves in a row. Here's a clip of the Tipura Youth Group Choir singing at Marriott's mother's Malawian funeral. We also had an amazing conversation with Sharmila Elias, who can trace her family history right back several generations to early Scottish and Malawian relationships. I'm a fourth generation Scotsman. I've got a mixed culture background. When I was a bit younger, I was digging into like the history of our grandfathers, great grandfathers and so on. And one of them came up and his name was Michael Old. He was a missionary, but he was also a a physician. So he came in the 1800s. He must have been already married in Scotland or I don't know. He must have had family of some sort. And whatever he did here had to be kept secret. They had a daughter here in Malawi and he also had a daughter in Zambia. The daughter in Malawi, her name was Bertha. And his daughter in Zambia was Stella. And these daughters then went on to get married to other obviously cultures altogether and other people. But the one in Malawi got married to a Muslim man who was like late 60s. And uh, he was a tradesman. He was a farmer. He traveled quite a lot and they settled in Tanzania. She got married off. So it was an arranged marriage. And he paid dowry for her. She must have been like 13 or 14. So I remember when I was doing the research on this at the time, I was about 12. It hit me that in our family, here in Malawi, whether it was the culture, whether it was the religion, a lot of children got married off. And then I started doing a bit more research much later in life, which is very recent, that we still have child marriages in Malawi. There's pockets of uh, villages that actually still do this. We'll say this again. Some difficult subjects will come up during the series, like child marriages, and we're not going to approach them unafraid, um, only with open minds, because that's all we can do. We are not experts, just enthusiasts. If you are an expert and you'd be able to hold a conversation with us about this, then there's plenty of time to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Details on how to do that at the end of the episode. This is my friend Hazel. And here is my pal, Timsey. You're listening to the People to People podcast. And we are really digging deep into what partnership for Scotland and Malawi actually means. And in this episode, we're looking at people and the past. Finally, we wanted to include in this first episode the voice of David Hope Jones, Chief Executive of the Scotland-Malawi Partnership. There's a real trust in, in that relationship between, between Malawi and Scotland and Scotland's views. You know, I don't want to overdo the point, but by many people in, in Malawi as, as a friend and, and partner rather than a donor, and that allows very different things 
to, to happen. But it also means a real responsibility on, on all of us that, wow, you know, we're, we're, we're involved in this amazing 160 year relationship, you know, what's and all where, you know, um, you know, appalling things have, have happened and wonderful things have, have happened. And, you know, as with all of us, you know, we, we have our, our failings, but, but for whatever reason that there is a particular trust and solidarity that's, that's there now. You know, it's brilliant when Malawians come across and they start asking about our system. I remember the, the vice president of Malawi escorting him through the House of Commons and I was sitting with him above the chamber watching Theresa May, then prime minister, talking about Brexit at that time. And because it was an important moment, all the sort of lords started sort of tottering through and, and joining us there and sort of had the president of Malawi to, to my left and the Duke of Wellington to my right and sort of explaining to him that all of these guys are also parliamentarians, but no one has actually voted, voted for them. I've said this to, to lots of MPs as they as they go to Malawi for the first time. You know, start start a meeting in which you want to talk about governance by telling them, you know, just how many times the Scottish Parliament was over budget. Tell them how appallingly we we managed the tram network that we have in in Edinburgh. Tell them about the uh, Royal Bank of Scotland's contribution to the global economic collapse. Tell them about our un, un, unelected parliamentarians and our, our journey to a fully democratic system that's several hundred years in and probably has several hundred years to go and you know then you're able to create a space to really really talk and, and really listen once you've got that set of humility and, and self-awareness and I guess my hope for the future is that there's that there's more of that and just that Malawi begins to get fair opportunity in the global trading environment in the sort of energy environment and, and that Malawi isn't ravaged by climate change something that it's overwhelmingly not been responsible for the contribution for so I guess, I guess those are some of my thoughts there so I think we have set the wheels in motion for our podcast. Let's pedal forward. We're going to end with a cycling story. When Glasgow hosted the, the Commonwealth Games, we're banging on about the, the, the bilateral relationship and, and making sure Malawi's well, well welcomed and they were the first, first country to come into the, to, the, uh, to the athletes' village and the first country to have the flag raised. They had all sorts of special receptions. There's a brilliant moment when... The Malawi bicycle team, you know, Savindo or Velodrome, one, they took their bike to a Glasgow bike shop and, and said, look, can you service these? And, and the bike shop guy said, look, seriously, look, this just isn't, these bikes aren't to a standard for you guys to compete. And they said, well, this is what we've got. And he said, oh, my, my kids are, have got a school partnership with Malawi. And, and when they went to collect their bikes, the, the bike shop had not lent, but, but given them uh, world, world standard bikes to compete on and they got to take those back to Malawi afterwards just because these people in the bike shop wanted to do their bit in the relationship to make sure that Malawi again had had a dignified participation which is brilliant and then I've got to say it came to the netball and Malawi beat Scotland and knocked Scotland out of our own netball competition so <laughs> all bets were all bets were off unbelievable you, you you're a good host and, and then your friends turn up and knock you out of your own competition so I'm afraid that's all we could cram into this episode, but rest assured, we are just getting started. There is so much more to look forward to. Our next episode is People and Parity. We ask, can you really have an equal partnership when one country is so rich and the other is so poor? We speak with Reverend Kenneth Ross and a volunteer from the Wildlife and Environmental Society of Malawi. We discuss the first mango of the season and chips in a bag. And there's more from Deliso. What tells you more about me? Black... Malawian Christian, right? Or science fiction writer, comedian, laughs a lot, right? And I always think it's the things which you choose and the things which you are, which define you more. And we have a request. We really need you to spread the word about our podcast. 
yeah, we need people to tell people about it. Tell as many people as possible. Mention it to your friends, call someone up and tell them about it or share it and join us on social media. You can find us on all social media channels. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at people to people podcast. And you can also send us an email at people to people pod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a review. It really helps. And now a special treat. We are going to be played out today by a recording of a live performance by Lazarus Gigondali with Dave Luhanga and Brave Mnyai on backing vocals and djembe drums. It was recorded at the Scotland Malawi Partnership AGM in Edinburgh in 2019. So, <laughs> I love Scotland. In this episode, you heard from Kathy Ratcliffe, Andrew Namakoma, Joshua from the Dunblane Boys Brigade, Conleith Chester Solenge, Delisa Chaponda, Lord Jack McConnell, Marriott Dallas, Sharmila Ilias, David Hope Jones, and it was produced and presented by Chimsey Dory and me, Hazel Darwin Clements, and was supported by the Scotland Malawi Partnership. Yeah.